to Sunday School, please find your seats. Good to be with you in person. I always relish these opportunities because I love what we're able to do via the live stream, but there's nothing like actually being with you and being able to see, uh, see you up close. So I'm really happy to be here, and it's really good to see you all. We're back into our Answers Bible Curriculum, second edition, and we're proceeding onward with our actual chronological study. We are going back to the beginning. We're starting in Genesis, and we're going to have just a little heads up. Oh, no, it stopped working. Maybe you can advance the slide, but I just wanted to show you the lessons that we have for Unit 2. It's lighting up here, but nothing's happening. Maybe it froze. But we have seven lessons on creation, and then we have one lesson on corruption, and then we have a review. There it is, unit two. Is it working now? Hey, it is. Very good. So you can see those on the screen here. Various lessons on creation, and you might ask, why so many? Why are we spending so many lessons on creation? Well, it's simple. Understanding creation rightly is critical for you and for me. And why is that? Is it because you need to believe in young earth creationism in order to be saved? Well, no. There are implications for the gospel, however, that are based on how you interpret Genesis 1. And many important doctrines in the Bible are related to your interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But the reason I think that understanding creation rightly is critical is because it is a clear test of what you and I think is ultimately authoritative. Is the plain sense of Scripture authoritative? Or are man's ideas and scientific claims authoritative? Will you and I start with the Scriptures and then assess man's theories based on the Scriptures? Or will we start with man's theories and then use those to assess the Scripture? This is something we've been talking about, but I just want to remind you again, this is something that we need to grasp especially when it comes to creation. We don't want to forget the truths that we previously discussed in Unit 1. The Bible is our ultimate authority and foundation for truth. We must not bring our assumptions to the Bible and then interpret the Bible according to those assumptions. Rather, we let the Bible speak for itself. Let the meaning come out of the text. Study the text inductively. Observe the details. Interpret and then apply. We do not let other sources of knowledge interpret the Bible. We use the Bible to interpret those sources In other words, to pull back that metaphor that Ken Ham uses, we look at the world with biblical glasses. And we can do this because the Bible is totally sufficient and trustworthy. As we proceed forward, we don't want to forget those principles, but we also don't want to forget these seven seas of history. We talked about those for two lessons. Uh, These function as our outline for understanding the flow of history and the most important events. Who can name the seven seas of history? In order. Can you do it, Juliana? That's it. Very good. The seven C's right there. Excellent. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. Yeah, you want to keep those in mind going forward, too. Well, we're starting with that first C today. Creation, if I go back to my previous slide, oops. God creates the universe. That's our lesson title. And what are we doing in today's lesson? We're going to overview the creation account by watching a video that dramatically goes through the verses of chapter 1. Then we'll do an activity that compares the universe's beginning, or the Earth's more specifically, the Earth's beginning sequence according to the Bible compared to prevailing scientific theory, prevailing secular theory. 
And then we'll finish by talking through some application questions. Let's pray as we, before we go on. Lord God, we thank you for your word, especially that it is so clear. It, it gives us the information we need to know about the beginning, where we came from, why things are the way that they are. We thank you that you've given us this revelation. Help me to be able to explain it well. I pray that this will be a profitable time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to get our video started. This video is not that long, only about five minutes, but it's going to narrate us through Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, and birds that may fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of heaven. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. 
And God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after its kind, livestock and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after its kind. And it was so. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. That's pretty amazing, right? I feel, um, I don't know, I just felt even getting a little emotional about that. Just like, wow, whew, what God has done. Anyways, <clears throat> we're going to examine each part of that Genesis count in more detail in the next few weeks, but let's see if we can make some general, some beginning observations of this Genesis 1 narrative, or this Genesis 1 text. Yeah, I kind of gave away the next thing I want to say, but hang on just a second. What type of literature is Genesis 1? Does it sound like a narrative? Does it sound like a poem? Does it sound like a letter? Or does it sound like some other type of writing? You'd say it's a narrative. It's clearly a narrative. Now, some people don't want to admit that. But let's, let's clarify some things, and I think it will be, be even more abundantly clear. A narrative, what is a narrative? It's just a story with events told in an orderly sequence. A narrative is a story with events told in an orderly sequence. Do we see an orderly sequence in Genesis 1? We do. How? Give me some uh, evidence that there's an orderly sequence here. The number of the days. We have certain time details. Uh, not just the day numbers, but in the beginning, evening and morning, day 1, day 2. There's a summary at the end of the creation account, the beginning of chapter 2, that emphasizes chronology. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts, this is chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So we see some time details that indicate sequence. But what else? Yeah, Steve. In the beginning, that's another time detail. Very good. What else? Roy? Okay, there does seem to be even a logic, uh, a reasoning for why the order proceeds as it does. Now, what's interesting, as we'll see later on, it does not really, or someone today might not think that this is the most logical order. Someone maybe who's, who's used to secular scientific theory, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later on. I do want to draw your attention to even the verbs that we see here in Genesis chapter 1. Verbs, 
when things happen, when actions happen, that also is an indicator of sequence. And we see a number of verbs indicating sequence. God created, then God said, God saw, God separated, then God said, etc. In fact, if you examine the, the type of Hebrew verbs used here, Again and again in this passage, they are verbs that specifically indicate sequence. It's what call, what's called a yiktol verb. And all that means is that a verb that indicates sequence. It can almost be translated, and then. And then this happened. And they're almost always translated in the past tense. And you see them frequently in historical, or you see them frequently in narrative. They appear much less frequently in poetry, but they're very frequent in narratives of the Bible. So from the verbs and from the time markers, it's not difficult to discern that we have a set of events presented in sequential fashion. Sequential fashion, And as these are historical events, they purport to be historical events at the beginning of our world, we can confidently include this text in the genre historical narrative. This is historical narrative. But someone will say, what about the literary devices and the stylistic elements in this passage? Well, what about them? Do we see literary or stylistic elements in this passage? We do. What's an example of a stylistic choice that's evident in this passage? Repetition. We see a lot of repetition. It's the most striking stylistic element in this passage. You might see, or you see phrases like, then God said. God called, God made, God said, let there be, and it was so. God saw that it was good, so there was evening and morning, the X day, according to its kind. These phrases keep on getting repeated in the passage. There's also a repeated structure in the passage, almost a formula. It starts with, then God said, the description of what God created, and then it finishes with, and there was evening and morning, the day X. So that's clearly a, a stylistic, a literary choice. What else? Is there another literary element evident here? You might notice an apparent symmetry. Some have sought to use a or to point out an apparent symmetry between days one to three and days four to six. And they use this as an argument to interpret this passage not as narrative but as figurative, non-time sequential poetry instead of historical narrative. And one must acknowledge there is a degree of correspondence between the first three days and the second three days. Uh, day one, we have the creation of what I will argue is earth, heavens, time, light, day, and night. And in day four, particularly with day, night, and light, day four, we have the celestial bodies that rule day and night. There seems to be some correspondence there. In day two, we have the water separated into the waters in the heavens and the waters below. And in day five, we have the sea and air creatures. That seems to correspond, right? You've got the creatures in the heavens and the creatures below. And then day three, we have the land and water separated, and then the vegetation is created. And then day six, we have, well, what do you know? The creatures that go on the land. The land, animals, and man are created in day six. But one shouldn't go too far with this parallel, with this symmetry, because it's not exact. Those who are advocates of what's called the framework hypothesis, that's basically the idea that this is all figurative, it's just presented in this really literary parallel way because that just shows the logic of what God was doing that's not chronological. Some of those advocates will posit that in day one to three, we get the realm created, earth, water, heaven, and in day four to six, we get the rulers of those realms. We get the sea creatures, the land creatures, and the air creatures, and, and even the celestial bodies. But this doesn't work. 
And why? Well, again, because it's not exact. More than light was created on day one. Moreover, the realm of water existed since day one. And it's not divided into seas until, or not divided into the waters above and then into the seas on day two and three. So if the sea creatures were indeed to become the rulers of the sea, well, then it would have to be on day four because that's when the water, that's when the water was created. Or that would correspond to day one when the water was created. Water wasn't created on day two. It wasn't created on day three. So when the sea creatures appear on day five, it's not parallel. Moreover, the sea and air creatures do not rule those realms. In fact, there's only one creature who's given charge to rule, according to this account. Which creature? Man. Man is given dominion over the land creatures, the air creatures, and the sea creatures, and over the earth. So there is a relationship between days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6, but it's not an exact parallel. It's not an exact symmetry. But even if it were an exact symmetry, it does not follow that this symmetry must mean that it's a figurative and not historical account. And why not? If there's an exact parallel, why doesn't that mean that it's not historically accurate? Because God could have chosen to create that way. He could have chosen to actually do things in exact parallel. He's God. He can do what he wanted. He did choose to do this creation in a specific way. And we'll see more of those reasons as we go along. He could have chosen to make it completely symmetrical, and that wouldn't change the fact that he actually did it. In fact, there is, I think, a very clear reason in the text why the order does proceed the way it does, and it's because of the state of the earth that's described in verse 2. Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was formless and void. That is, it is without form, and it is without filling. Void means empty. It doesn't have form, and it hasn't been filled. So what happens over the next sequence of days? If the earth is formed, the earth and heavens are formed. We see that in days one to three, primarily. And the earth and heavens are filled. We see that in days four to six. So it makes sense. But all this to say, do stylistic elements or literary devices like repetition or symmetry, do they prevent this text from being narrative? They don't. They don't. And if that were the case, then we'd have to throw away all the history in the Bible. Because every piece of history, the Gospels, the Chronicles, the Kings, they all use stylistic elements. They have their repetitions. They have different formulas. They have things that the author chose to put in a stylistic way. The authors have the liberty to do that. And they're not compromising the text by doing so. All biblical writers use literary devices and make stylistic choices. And that does not make what they say less accurate or true. So Genesis 1, as I say, is plainly narrative. But let's make some more observations of the text. What period of time does this passage describe? The six days at the very beginning of the universe. The very beginning of time, and then it proceeds over six days. Who's doing the creating in this chapter? God. And we're aware of other scriptures that make it clear this is the triune God. But there's even evidence in this text. The Spirit of God is over the waters, and yet God is the one speaking into existence. And we even have the phrase, let us make man in our image. That phrase itself doesn't prove the Trinity, but it does testify of the Trinity. Because it's not the angels that are, or man is not made in the image of angels. How do the various parts of creation come into existence? 
They were spoken. They were commanded into existence. God spoke and they existed. They appeared. And this truth is repeated in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, that is by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. This is what we call, or what theologians call, fiat creation. That is creation by decree. All God had to do was command something to come into existence and it did. Let's ask some more interpretive, interpretation questions now. Go back to Genesis 1 and look at, look at the different phrases. We have the first part that says, in the beginning. In the beginning of what? Well, time, the universe. Now, if this passage describes the beginning of the universe, then what existed before Genesis 1.1? Only God. Only God. There was nothing else because the universe was not created. Only the triune God existed. Not even time existed. Not anything in the universe. Otherwise, it's not the beginning. Now, someone might ask, wait a second, what about the angels? The Bible doesn't give us very much information about angels. But we do know that they, they are created beings. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Jesus, says, this is Colossians 1.16, For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now that phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, it's best understood as referring to angels. And we see that, those terms used in the same way in the book of Ephesians, referring to spirit beings. They are part of the group of things invisible that were created by the Son of God. We also know that angels were present during at least some portion of creation because we hear this from Job. Job 38, verses 4 to 7. This is part of God reproving Job. Job 38, 4 to 7, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, seeing how humans were not created when, when, at the beginning of creation, they were created at the very end of that process, the phrase sons of God should be understood as referring to angels. They were there rejoicing when God laid the foundation of the earth, which would either be on day one, when the earth was actually created, or day three, when the, earth, when the dry land appeared. So when were the angels created? We can't say for sure. But, John MacArthur, in one of his sermons on creation, he reasons that the angels were probably created shortly before they would do their function, which would be to proclaim the revealed glory of God and to minister in his creation. So that would suggest day one or day three. But they would be part of that creation week. The angels would be part of the creation week along with everything else. And Answers in Genesis takes the same view, argues similarly. But before the beginning, there was nothing but God. Now, the second part of the verse, in verse, verse 1, says, God created the heavens and the earth. What does this mean? And I, and I ask that specifically in this sense. Is verse 1 a summary of God's creation activities on all the days of creation? Or is it describing what God did on the first day specifically? Now, I take the position, this is a difficult question, but... I take the position that Genesis 1-1 is a description of God's first 
activities on day one, rather than a simple summary of the rest of the chapter. And let me tell you why. Because you notice, Genesis 1-2, the very next verse, is a description of the earth's state before God creates light. And what do you notice about the earth? A couple things. It's one. It's without form and void, but it is there. And what else is on the earth? Water. There's water covering the earth. The earth is there, it has water in it, but it's formless and void. Now it's significant that nowhere else in this creation narrative does it say that God created land or created water. He divides it, he reveals it, but he doesn't create it. And that's what we see on days two and three. Now, it would be strange for Moses to start the beginning of creation acts with the creation of light shining on an empty and unformed earth without mentioning that the earth was created, since that would imply that the earth and the water had been there previously. They were there before day one, or they were eternally existent. It'd be much more natural, especially for his audience, to mention the earth's actual creation before describing its state its unfinished state. Now, I recognize there is a potential difficulty about day two because it says that God separates the waters by an expanse and he called the expanse heaven. Well, didn't Genesis 1-1 say that God already created the heavens? If you're saying that's a description of what God did on day one, then why is heaven being, why do we have something being called heaven in day two? Isn't that God creating heaven? Well, my reply to this objection is, Yes, he does create, or he does establish heaven in day two, but they, they were, in a sense, already there. The universe and the heavens were there, but they were unformed. They were incomplete. Remember, days one to three appear to be focused on finish the forming of the earth and the heavens. This idea of incompletion uh, continues on in the narrative from there. So just as the earth was unformed and and empty, so the heavens were as well. So God finishes forming the heavens, and then he fills them with the luminaries and other celestial bodies. So to summarize my little argument here, I assert that Genesis 1-1 is not a summary of the preceding account of creation, but a description of God's first creative acts. He creates heaven, or he creates the heavens, he creates the earth, and then he proceeds to finish them as the days progress. Now, if you don't buy my argument, you still think Genesis 1-1 is a summary, or, as some good men do, you think it's a summary and a description, which I'm not exactly sure how that would work, but some people do take that position. It's a, it's a description of what he did on day one, and it's a summary of what he did on all the days. I would at least insist that you accept what Exodus 20:11 says. Exodus 20:11 says, For in six days the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath, Sabbath day and made it holy. If you think it's not clear in Genesis 1-1, whether that's a description or a summary, Exodus 20-11 tells you that everything that was created was made in six days, including the heavens and the earth. So whether, if, it's a, if it's truly a summary in Genesis 1-1, implied in that summary is that God created earth and water and the heavens on day one of the creation week, and not before. This is key because there are some who advocate what's called the gap theory, that there is a long expanse of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and this would allow you to fit in an old earth. 
But Exodus 20.11 doesn't allow for that. It's explicit. that Everything that was created was created in six days. There's no room for eternally existent matter or billions of years between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Now, let's not miss the big picture, though. If you're an Israelite listening to the law of Moses being read before you as you're going into the promised land, or hearing this soon after you've entered the promised land, which would have been the original context of Genesis, what's the main point you're supposed to get from this passage? I think it's actually pretty simple. God is the all-powerful creator. He made everything in the universe in six days. And this corresponds with what we hear in John 1.3, speaking of Jesus. It says of the Son, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. God has done it all. God is the all-powerful creator, and he has created everything in six days. Everything that exists, he did it in six days. Now, why would six days specifically be important for Israel later? Why not do it in 20 days? Or one day? Exactly. This is another reason why God chose to create the way he did. He was going to establish a pattern. We know God could have done it all in an instant. God could have done it all in a billion years. But he chose to do it in six days and then rest on a seventh day because he wanted to establish a pattern for Israel. Israel's work week would consist of six days and then a rest on the seventh day, seventh day just as God did in creation. Now, creation clearly declares the omnipotence of God, why would it be important for the Israelites to realize God's omnipotence? Going to the promised land, you're being, having reemphasized to you that God, the creator, is completely powerful. Why would that matter to them? What are they going to have to do when they go in the promised land? They're going to have to conquer it. They have to obtain their inheritance. That means destroying and driving out the peoples of the land. And those people have mighty fortresses. There are many, many people there, probably more than Israel was. How are we going to be able to do this? You can't do it, but your God can. And he's promised that he will. So be obedient to him. This creation account would have been very encouraging to those Israelites, because they can see that they can trust God, and they can rely on his power as they go in to inherit the promised land. And of course, there's an application for us there as well, right? We're not going to conquer a land for ourselves, but we do need to rely and trust our God. Rely on and trust. Now, some have tried to take the creation sequence, as is given here in Genesis 1, and they've tried to fit it with man's modern, secular, scientific theories. Big Bang, evolutionism. Let's see if we can fit that with Genesis. To do this, they suggest the days of Genesis are not literal days, but they're long ages, millions of years, and this was just part of a process of God creating the earth. Now, can the Bible and modern scientific theory be united in this way? Well, let's find out. We're going to do a little activity now called The Order Matters. What we're going to do is we're going to work through certain stipulations of a typical secular science advocate's view of the universe's beginning and see how that compares to the biblical view. Now, we've done this with the seven seeds of history, but now we're just doing it specifically with creation and see how the order lines up. We're going to work through nine assertions that come from modern secular scientific theory. 
All right. In the secular view of origins, the sun was formed before the earth. But in the biblical view, which came first? The earth came first. The earth was created before the sun. And we see this plainly in verse 1. In the secular view, number two, the earth was originally a molten ball. That was its beginning state. But in the biblical view, what is the beginning state of the earth? It's covered in water, formless and covered in water. And this is also plain in the text. Number three, in the secular view, the stars were formed before the earth. But in the biblical view, which came first? The earth came before the stars also. In the secular view, number four, the dry land was present before the oceans. Secular view, you have dry land and then the oceans come later. But in the biblical view, which came first? The waters came first. They covered the earth. The dry land only appeared on day three. Number five, in the secular view, sea creatures evolved before land plants. But what about the biblical view? The plants came first. There were plants before there were any creatures on the earth. Number six, in the secular view, trees evolved long after simpler plants. What about the biblical view? All at the same time. It's explicit in the text. If we go back to day three, verse 12, actually verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with after their kind. In verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with their seed in them. Plants, trees, all at the same time. Number seven. In the secular view, reptiles evolved before birds. Birds came from reptiles in the secular view. What about the biblical view? Birds came before the reptiles because the birds were created on day five, and reptiles, reptiles as a land creature appeared day six. Number eight, in the secular view, reptiles evolved before mammals. Reptiles first. In the biblical view, all at the same time. They're all on day six. And then finally, in the secular view, humans evolved long after the first mammals. What about the biblical view? They were created on the same day. Mammals created day six. Humans created day six. Now we could do this with a number of other assertions. But hopefully you're already seeing a pattern. And we can make a few conclusions based on what we've seen. Does Genesis 1 seem to indicate that the events described happened in a particular order? Yes, narrative, ordered sequence. How consistent are the order between these two views? They're not consistent. Every one of the assertions we looked at, they don't line up. And of course, we could look at more. The two orders are not consistent. Now, if you really were determined, what might you do to make the secular view align with the biblical view? How could you make it fit? Well, you first have to make the days long ages, that's for sure. But what else would you have to do? Ultimately, you have to change your interpretation of the Bible. You're going to have to make things more figurative. 
you're going to have to change the meaning and even ignore the contextual clues of the text. You have to make the days vast periods of time, and you also have to make the days overlap one another. You have to destroy the chronology of the text because the secular view doesn't agree with this chronology. You have to say, well, you know, this is just arranged topically, you know. This is just figurative. Yeah, God did these things, but, you know, these things were happening all around the same time with one another. But that's not what the text says. The text says this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. In other words, you, you have to ignore what the text actually says, and you make it say what you want it to say. And this is because, really, are the secular and biblical views compatible with one another? They're not. They're not. You have to reinterpret the text according to modern scientific assumptions to make them work together. But in doing this, you've, you've destroyed anything the text actually has to say. You might as well not even have this text. What are you going to say, Caleb? That's a great question. Let me repeat it real quick. If we're not to accommodate the biblical text to modern scientific assumptions, how do we do the opposite? How do we subject modern assumptions to, or how do we subject the findings of modern science to biblical assumptions? We'll talk about that more going on, but it is basically doing just that. You're taking the Bible as your assumptions, and you're saying, all right, here's the data I see. How does this fit with a biblical perspective? And Answers in Genesis does a lot of that. And different creation, young earth creation scientists, creation scientists in general, they do a lot of that too. One of the things that Answers in Genesis emphasizes is that the data itself doesn't tell you anything. It needs to be subjected to an interpretation. So if you see, as many geologists do, rock layers orderly spaced all around the world, it's not... It's not perfect in every place, but generally you have these orderly rock layers. And they say, well, for it to be everywhere, then this must have happened over billions of years. Uh, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's the logical explanation for these orderly layers. But a young creationist might look at that and say, well, because we know that the Bible's true, it didn't happen over billions of years, it must have been some other thing, probably due to the flood. The flood would have affected the entire earth, and it would have resulted in uh, because of the same forces are happening all over the earth, it would have resulted in the depositing of rock layers in an orderly sequence. And so that would be an explanation. Now, of course, because creation is a supernatural event, as was the flood, ultimately, science can only get you so far. You really can't use science to explain a miracle, to explain supernatural happenings. Yes, there will be effects that you can see. I mean, we have the world, it has its order and all that kind of things. But you can't go back and recreate that moment scientifically. You can't do that with Jesus' resurrection or any other miracles in the Bible. It's ultimately not a scientific question. So when you come up with a model, sometimes creationists, young earth creationists, are derided for coming up with models that, don't, that aren't sophisticated enough to explain the scientific data. Well, in a sense, that makes sense because you're talking about a supernatural event. We're doing our best. We're not going to be able to get all the science of this because this is what God did specially. To really know what happened at creation, you need an eyewitness. You need someone who was there. And, of course, no one was there except God. But God revealed what happened to Moses. So that's kind of a long answer, but basically it's being honest about your presuppositions. We're relying on biblical presuppositions because we know the Bible is true. Modern scientists 
those who hold the secular scientific theory, theory, they rely on naturalistic presuppositions. They preclude the idea of a supernatural creation or even of a god, and they say it has to be explained by other forces. And they assume other things like uniformitarianism, which is everything that happens today happens the same way in all the ages of the past. There hasn't been anything irregular, which of course is a silly presupposition and it contradicts the Bible, but that's what they have to do in order to accommodate what they want to believe. Anyways, so hopefully you're seeing, just even from the simple comparison of the two orders, that the two views are not really compatible with one another. Text indicates chronology and sequence. To fit in the secular view, you have to compromise the text. You can't let it mean what it clearly means. Now, the Israelites certainly did not see anything in the text to interpret it according to an old earth, big bang, evolutionary worldview, and neither did Christians up until the 1800s. I mean, that itself is an interesting testimony. Nobody saw this. Nobody thought the text was indicating an old earth until 1800. Was it only then that God's word could be properly understood? Indeed, we can trust the account of creation in the Bible over all scientific and philosophical assertions of men because only God's word is completely authoritative and trustworthy. Are we going to have a scientific explanation for everything? No. But we don't need to because we know the word is trustworthy. In the coming lessons, we'll talk more, a little bit, a little bit more about the science. But for now, I hope you see that modern secular scientific theory and the biblical account are fundamentally opposed to one another. So, today we've overviewed the Genesis creation account. We've compared it to the evolutionary Big Bang, Old Earth view of origins. Let's explore a few more application questions before we finish today. My application slide here. Number one, many people claim that the Bible doesn't tell us how God created, just that he did create. Is this an accurate statement based on Genesis 1? No, it's not. Because how did God create? He spoke it into existence by his word. The text is explicit about that. Other sections of scripture are explicit about that. No, the Bible does tell you, does tell you how God created. So to say that, oh, the text is not all that clear, that's again, that's just accommodating modern man's wisdom. No, the text, text tells us. Number two, as we approach this topic in conversation with fellow believers... Because let's face it, many dear brethren are open to or believe in an old earth or even Big Bang and evolution. What should be our attitude with our fellow believers? I'm hearing some whispers that I think are accurate. I'll remind you of 1 Peter 3.15, that famous apologetics verse. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When it comes to origins, age of the earth, we do need to be zealous for the truth. This is clear in the Bible. Those caught up in error are doing injury to themselves and to the church. This isn't something we should just say, eh, whatever. But again, Also, we need to approach the topic gently and in love. Thankfully, this is not a salvific issue. Yes, it has something to do with salvation, but you can believe in an old earth. You can even believe in theistic evolution. It has lots of problems, but you can still be saved. So it is important, but it still needs to be approached approached gently and in love. I've mentioned some of the different positions that believers take on creation, 
Some believe that the days of creation are really long ages, not literal 24-hour days. They're billions of years, some indeterminate period of time. That's the day-age theory. Some believe there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, the gap theory. Some believe that God progressively created animals, and then he wiped them all out, and then created a new set of animals. That's called progressive creationism. Some believe that God allowed life to evolve, and then he gave the first human a spirit, so they were spiritless until they reached a certain state, and then God said, you're Adam, and now you're a real human being. That's theistic evolution. And some believe we can't really know the answer. Creation agnosticism. We know God created, but don't know how he did it. All sorts of theories, but who can really say what's true? And we'll talk a little bit more about these viewpoints in later lessons. But each one of these is, is not justified according to the biblical text. As we seek to persuade our brethren of the right view, the right way to view creation, what should we use as our chief support? The scripture. Yeah, we can pull in some scientific arguments or observations also, but ultimately it's got to be the scripture. Show them that, brother, I love you, but have you, do you see how secular theory doesn't fit with the biblical text? Creation was a supernatural event and requires a supernatural witness, i.e. the scriptures, to correctly understand it. So that's what we want to take to our brethren. Now, a related question. Should this approach, should our approach to supporting the biblical view of creation look different when discussing it with those who are not Christians? What do you think? Now, Danny, you say yes. Explain. Now, it's interesting you say that. You, you, i just repeat what you said, that we're, we're coming at it presuppositionally. We know that they know that there's a God deep down, and we know that there's a God, and we know the Bible is true. So we approach them that way. But how is it different than approaching a, a fellow Christian? I think we do need to be aware that, all right, someone who doesn't believe, they are in certain rebellion against the truth, so I need to be aware of that. I need to speak to them in a way that's going to be most edifying to them. Maybe they don't know the account of creation, or maybe uh, they're stuck behind a certain reason for not believing the Bible, and I can easily get rid of that. That's true, but ultimately, I would argue, our approach is the same. We come with, God exists, Bible's true. Here's what the Bible says. We do that for our fellow believer. We do that for the unbeliever. Unbeliever says, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, we can show why or we can deal with his specific objection. A lot of times they're, they're very obviously self-invalidating. I don't believe the Bible because there's no such thing as truth. Well, you've just contradicted yourself because you've made a truth assertion that says there's no such thing as truth. That doesn't make any sense. I'll tell you what makes sense. The Bible says. But even if we can't pick that, pick that, that contradiction out, we could say, look, have you, have you read the Bible? Have you, do you understand what it says? Let me show you what it says, because this is the truth. And when you understand this, when you believe this, not only will you be saved, but everything, everything in life will suddenly come into clarity. We come to unbelievers with the scriptures as well. But I should emphasize, our goal with an unbeliever is not to convince them of young earth creationism or even of creationism. Our goal is to see them saved, to see them to know Christ. 
Now again, that touches on creation. But more important than specific view on creation is what they believe about Christ. I see what you're saying. You say we can reason with a believer because he has the spirit of God, but the unbeliever doesn't have the spirit, so can we use the Bible in the same way? Well, I would ask, well, how are they going to have the spirit of God? By the scriptures, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So there is a, there is a sense that even though the mind of the unbeliever is darkened, we are aware that they are receivers of common grace, they've been made in the image of God, and they know the truth about God within themselves, and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. I'm pulling various scriptures to, to, to give you that paraphrase. So in a sense, I, I use this analogy, um, or I talked about this analogy with my wife one time, but it's kind of like if there's a, a battle, we've got gorillas on the other side. We've got uh, resistance fighters on the other side who are saying, you know this truth to be true. Deep down you know this. We have an inside man. So when we share the truth of Scripture with them, it's not like it's just hitting a, a, hitting a wall. It's actually drawing on what they already know within themselves. But they're going to continue to suppress that truth until the Spirit of God quickens them. But that's why I argue that because faith comes by hearing and because, of those, because the image of God is imprinted on each person, we're coming at them with God's supernatural truth. Come at them with the voice of God because they will recognize it. They may hate it when they hear it, but they will recognize it. I like what someone else said talking about atheism one time. It says, the atheist platform belief basically rests on two fundamental doctrines. God doesn't exist, and I hate him. (laughs) Right? That's just to show. People know. We want to show them, look, the the way you're thinking and the way you're living, it's inconsistent. It contradicts itself. And you want to know why? The Bible tells you. Can I tell you? One more, or two more questions. If we suggest the account of creation in Genesis is just a myth or it's allegory, it's figurative, you know, shouldn't be taken in a straightforward way, what other doctrines become affected? They become mythical or allegorical. Or to say that one other way, what doctrines that find their basis in the first few chapters of Genesis become compromised if it's just all figurative? The fall, sin, original sin, man's depravity. If Adam didn't really exist, or if he was just some hominid that was close to a human being, and this account is not really true, then the fall doesn't make sense. Why are we sinful? What happened to us? If it wasn't with Adam, then where did it come from? Not to mention, the New Testament makes an explicit connection between the first Adam and the last Adam. If Adam's not true, and if what he did didn't affect the entire race, then what about the last Adam? Is he true? And did what he do affect the entire race of those who believe in him? So salvation, original sin, total depravity are affected. What else? Okay, the omnipotence and sovereignty of God. If he didn't really create all these things, they came from some other place. Or if he 
just start the process and then back off, we could very easily end up with a deistic God. The clockwork universe. God got it started. He's gone now. Which has huge implications for salvation. Christ didn't really come because God doesn't, God doesn't intervene in the universe in that way. Miracles didn't really happen. God's not involved in your life today. He's just standing back from afar. Maybe he's doing his own thing. Yeah, it affects our view of how involved God is with creation and how involved God is in each of our lives. Inerrancy is, of course, affected. The perspicuity of Scripture is affected. Marriage is affected. Genesis 1 to 3 isn't true. Well, maybe marriage is just a construct. Maybe there is no reason why it should be limited to just one biological man and one biological woman. The line of the Messiah is compromised. And I think, yeah, even the gospel is affected. So again, I think there's good reason for us to contend for a true view of creation, a true view of Genesis. Many other doctrines are affected. One more question here. Again, we don't want to miss the big picture. How should understanding that God created the universe in six days by simply speaking it into his existence affect us? Yes, we can have the right view of creation, and that's good. But even more basically, how should that affect you and me? Yeah, it should put us in total awe of God. Have, have any of you have ever been to mountains or been on a mountain? They are awesome. You're like, wow, this is huge. And when you're on it, there's a little bit of fear in you. Like, wow, I've got to be really careful. I don't want to fall off this mountain. It's really a long way down. God made all of them. And he could just blow on them and they're gone. The power and awe of God, God as creator, God as sustainer, that should provoke an awe and praise and thanks to him, especially for all the goodness we see in creation. Lord, look at these mountains. They're beautiful. Now, you don't get to see too many mountains around here, but where we live, we can see the, the mountains in the distance and it's like, wow, those are great. Yeah, Emma. Mm. Wait, can you explain that last part? Laid out physically? Okay, I think I understand what you're saying, but I'll just repeat your idea. In, in creation, we're beginning to see God's plan unfold. The plan that ultimately culminates in the redemption of his own. That Emma noted those scriptures that talk about how we were predestined before the foundation of the, the, the world. We were even foreknown. Interesting study, if you look at the term foreknown as used in the New Testament, it's almost always personal. It doesn't say that God foreknow, foreknew a certain event would, ex- would happen. It says he foreknew people. And they're always associated with redemption. He foreknows his his saved ones, and he foreknows Christ as the one who would save them. So the word foreknow is not, I think it's, it's well argued, it's not simply a, an intellectual knowledge. It's relational. He foreloved them. That's what it meant by foreknown. And that happened even before creation, and that love was going to be manifest in creation as God begins to make it all unfold. So yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah, Caleb.
Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that is particularly encouraging to repeat your point. God didn't just create all at once just on a whim because he could, but it was with a plan. It was according to a certain order, and it would result in the Sabbath and the, and the work week, and it would result in many other things. And that's really encouraging to us because what are we sometimes tempted to believe? And what things that happen in our lives, is this random? Is this outside God's plan? How could this be good? How... How is this wise? How is this right? But we can even look back at creation and say God knew what he was doing then. And God still knows what he's doing. It's all unfolding according to his plan. You know, there's a, there's a brand of teaching out there, which apparently has become less popular, but I had to research from one of my classes. It's called open theism. Has anybody ever heard of that? Basically, it's the idea that God doesn't know the future. And it's, it's an attempt to um, over-literalize certain passages of the Bible and get rid of God's responsibility for evil, and to make him very uh, personal. But if God doesn't know the future, then, man, that makes life a lot more scary. It makes God hard to trust because he can make mistakes. Even open theists will admit that. But when you know, no, God has always had everything that happens in his plan. Nothing happens apart from his will. That's, that's a bedrock of encouragement. We can point to other things. I'll just say them quickly as we wrap up here. God's omnipotence should give us faith in his promises, especially that he is able to give new life, and that we find ultimately in Christ, victory over sin, life eternal with Christ. God's majesty should give us awe and thankfulness in being able to know him. God's ownership should convict us of our rebellion and cause us to seek reconciliation with him. We say, God's creator, he created me, I'm subject to him. That's what the apostles say in the New Testament, right? God, he doesn't need anything, but he is calling all people to repent. And you've not yet done that. You've not given him the worship that he's due. As creator, you must be reconciled to him. And of course, that's only possible through his foreknown, foreordained mediary, intermediary, Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in the sermon today. Anyways, that's the end of today's class. Next week, we'll be back in California, unfortunately. But I'm glad we can still continue to do the class together. We'll be looking more closely at the first four days of creation and the meaning of the word day as it's used in the text. That much-talked-about Hebrew word yom. If you'd like more information on creation, old earth, young earth, various arguments that go back and forth, I would recommend, of course, the Answers in Genesis website, www.answersingenesis.org, but also great book, I think we still have it in the book note, Coming to Grips with Genesis. I used this when I first put this Sunday School lessons together. I've used it in seminary. I used it recently on one of my papers about old earth versus young earth. It's such a great resource. It's very thorough, trying to be fair to the arguments used by old earth advocates and those who ascribe to secular theory, but just great answers and really top-notch. So I would recommend you get that book or at least check out that book because I think it will be a great encouragement to you. Let's close in prayer. Our great God, we do want to give you praise for, wow, what an amazing creator you are. And he didn't just create it, but you're continuing to sustain it. You govern it and you direct it, just as as we have said here. We thank you, God, but we know that means that we are beholden to you. God, we cannot get away from you. We cannot 
live independently from our creator. You created us to depend on you. So God, if any of us are not with you, not clinging to you, but running from you, I pray that you'd turn us around. Bring us back to our creator who is so wise and so good and so right, so powerful. Lord, I pray that we would give you, that we would enjoy worshiping you more than the rest of the service and time today. In Jesus' name, amen.